Happy Easter. Welcome to Prairie View. We're very happy to be worshiping with you this morning. I'm going to start by reading from John chapter 17. You're welcome to follow along. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word. And the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me. That they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me, because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name. And I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Over the past several months, we've been studying the Gospel of John. Along the way, we've met a curious religious leader named Nicodemus, a lonely Samaritan woman at a well, Jews and Greeks, Mary and Martha, some angry Pharisees, too. We've seen Jesus teach and heal and claim the authority and identity of God's Son. 
We even saw him resurrect Lazarus from the dead. We saw Jesus wash his disciples' feet. We've heard him promise his disciples the gift of the Holy Spirit. But today we reach what appears to be the end of the story. Jesus has predicted his betrayal and death. His public ministry has come to an end. He's reassured and warned his disciples about what will come when he's gone. And his time to leave them has finally arrived. And as that traitor Judas and the conniving religious leaders gather to find Jesus, as the Roman soldiers put on their helmets and sharpen their spears, what does Jesus do? Well, he prays. He prays for himself that he would be glorified by God through the cross that awaits him outside of Jerusalem and that God would be glorified in him. He prays for his disciples that they would abide in him. They would remain in him like branches on a vine. He prays they would be united, that God would protect them from Satan's attacks, that they would stand firm in a world that will hate them and that they would be grown and matured in truth. And finally, he prays not just for himself and not just for his original disciples, but for those who will believe in him through their word. He prays for those believers who will come long after Jesus's tomb is empty, long after his original disciples are dead and gone. Jesus prays for people like you and people like me. Now, think about it. In the final hours of his earthly life, Jesus prayed for you. What could possibly be more loving than that? Well, the rest of John's gospel gives us the answer to that question. So open up to John chapter 18 in your Bibles. Feel free to use the Bibles that we provide if you didn't bring one and take a Bible home with you if you don't own one. But before we do any reading together in John... Let's pray as a church. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the privilege of waking up and knowing that your son is alive. That at this moment, your son is sitting at your right hand. That your son is glorified and that you are glorified in him. And Father, we wait for him to return. Thank you that as we wait, we do not wait without hope. We do not wait unsure of whether or not what we believe is really worth it, whether or not what we believe is really true. Because every single time we doubt, every single time we have second thoughts, every time circumstances in life cause us to stumble, we can look back at an empty tomb. And we can know that roughly 2,000 years ago, a stone was rolled away, And linen cloths were left lying on a bed, and that a tomb was empty. That was true 2,000 years ago, and that's still true today. So, Father, thank you for this time that we have together. Thank you that we can call each other brother and sister, even though we have next to nothing in common, except for the fact that your son died for us, and that your son rose from the grave. And that we have that common hope. We have that common joy. We have that common salvation. Thank you, Lord, for Easter Sunday. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. 
after Jesus prays in John chapter 17, he goes to a garden with his disciples. And just as he predicted at the Last Supper, he's betrayed by Judas, his former disciple, the man whose feet he once washed. Peter takes out a sword ready to defend his Lord and friend. Earlier, Peter had said that he would lay down his life for Jesus if that's what it took. And it appears that he really meant it. But then Jesus calls off the dogs. He allows himself to be arrested. And at that point, the disciples are helpless to prevent it. Jesus is brought before the high priest where he faces a loaded trial. The trial is held at night, which violates Jewish law. The other Gospels tell us that the religious leaders conjured up false witnesses to testify against Jesus. You know, there's something in the Ten Commandments about that, not bearing false witness. But the religious leaders' primary charge appears to be one of blasphemy, a serious accusation, the kind of accusation that Jesus would surely want to defend himself from, right? And yet Jesus is mostly silent. After the high priest, Jesus is brought before Pilate, the Roman governor of Judea. Now, Pilate has no interest in Jewish religious disputes. He's got no skin in that game, but he can be manipulated politically. And the religious leaders do just that. Pilate tries to think of ways to get Jesus off the hook. He tries to just wash his hands of this whole thing. Pilate's no fool. He knows that Jesus is innocent. Pilate even proposes that the Jews choose between Jesus walking free or a known murderer walking free. Surely they don't hate Jesus that much, right? Well, they choose the murderer. At that point, Pilate feels he's in between a rock and a hard place. He frees the murderer and delivers Jesus over to crucifixion. And adding insult to injury, Jesus' disciples have all but vanished from the story, except for two. Peter and John follow from a distance, close enough to see what's happening to Jesus, but not so close that they get caught up in it. And Peter, the man who said he would lay down his life for Jesus, the man willing to pull out a sword against Roman soldiers in the garden, all of a sudden Peter can't even muster up the courage to say that he knows Jesus, just like Jesus said would happen. Now, there seems to be a number of contradictions in these chapters. Not contradictions in the sense of events being wrong, but things that just don't make sense. Things that just don't meet our standards of logic. I mean, why is it that a man who says his kingdom is not of this world, a man who said he has the authority from God to judge, why is it that a man like that would be sitting at the mercy of a Roman governor? Why is it that a man who is perfectly innocent, perfectly sinless, does nothing to save his own life? And why is it that a man who always wriggled his way out of the religious leader's schemes simply goes along with it now? It just doesn't make sense. But that's why we keep on reading the rest of the story. John chapter 19, starting in verse 16. So they took Jesus 
and he went out, bearing his own cross, to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the King of the Jews, but rather, This man said, I am King of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture, which says they divided my garments among them and for my clothing, they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. And he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Since it was the day of preparation... And so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. How thoughtful of them. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, that you also may believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. Crucifixion was a brutal way to die. A few weeks ago, Craig shared the 
physical experience of crucifixion. Nails through wrists and ankles, dislocated joints, suffocation. It would easily meet today's standards of torture or cruel and unusual punishment. But crucifixion is more than just physical punishment. It's social punishment. Victims were often crucified naked, increasing the public shame of the event. The Romans made a spectacle of crucifixion, using it as a warning sign to anyone who's thinking of making trouble. The victims would often be denied burial, and their bodies would be picked on by scavengers. Now put yourself in Mary's shoes, the mother of Jesus. Imagine standing there and watching this. Imagine standing there and hearing your son, the son of God, the one who came into your womb from the promise of an angel so long ago. Imagine watching him die on that cross. Imagine him saying, I thirst. Imagine that moment when he dies and the darkness is suffocating and the ground shakes and the curtain in the temple is torn from top to bottom. Imagine the heartbreak. Imagine the sorrow. Imagine the shame and imagine the pain. But then thankfully, two men, at much risk to their own reputations and maybe even their own lives, they provide Jesus a decent burial. They're both religious leaders, one named Joseph and the other Nicodemus, way back from John chapter 3. Now we see another contradiction of sorts here. One of those things about this story that just seems counterintuitive. It just doesn't seem to add up. I mean, didn't Jesus say in the very first words of his prayer, way back in chapter 17, didn't he say that this would be a time of his glory and the time of God the Father's glory? Because let's be honest, there's nothing glorious about this story so far. In fact, think about Deuteronomy 21, verse 23, a passage that says that a man hanged on a tree, or in this case, a cross, is cursed by God. Where in the world is the glory in that? It seems like the opposite of glory. But again, that's why we keep on reading. John chapter 20, verse 1. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. 
But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white, sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. Mary, Peter, and John find an empty tomb. They're confused at first. They remember Jesus saying something about rising from the dead, but they can't quite wrap their minds around it yet. But after Peter and John leave, Mary gets clarification. Angels make the announcement, and Jesus himself appears alive, just like he said he would. And all those teachings, all those healings, all those claims to authority and identity as God's son, Lazarus' resurrection, the washing of feet, the promise of the Holy Spirit, they're all true, and they're all from God. They weren't a magic trick. They weren't an optical illusion. They weren't just naive disciples convincing themselves that things were true. Everything is true. Jesus really is the word who was with God. He really is God from the beginning. He really is the one through whom all things were made. He really is all the things he claimed he was. Every single word, every single teaching, it all culminates in a stone rolled away, cloths lying folded up, It all culminates in a resurrection that confirms and announces to all of creation that our Lord Jesus Christ is risen. That our Lord Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Mary and Peter and John, Martha and Lazarus, the rest of the disciples, that Samaritan woman at the well, They weren't naive followers taken advantage of by some religious huckster who finally met his match. Because of an empty tomb and because of a risen Savior, they have reason to celebrate. They have reason to rejoice both now and in eternity. And you and I have the same reason to celebrate, the same reason to rejoice now and in eternity as well. And think about all the things Jesus turns upside down in these last few chapters of John's gospel. A king takes his throne by being mounted to a cross. God is glorified through his son's execution. Jesus is victorious 
by dying. And think about the witnesses of the risen Christ, Mary Magdalene. Not just any woman, but a woman who was once demon-possessed, baggage, perhaps a reputation. She's the first person to proclaim, I have seen the Lord. In just a few verses, we see Thomas, the most skeptical disciple of all. And yet Thomas puts his hand in Jesus' side. He touches Jesus' hands and confesses, my Lord and my God. And we can't forget about Peter, the man who chickened out of following Jesus once death became the obvious consequence. The one who abandoned him, the one scared to acknowledge him three separate times. Peter is called to follow Jesus once again and called to feed his sheep. Doesn't Jesus know that stuff like this just doesn't make sense? Doesn't he know that this is not how the world works? But then again, he did tell Pilate that his kingdom is not of this world. So why should it make sense by worldly standards? Now think back to John chapter 10, verses 17 and 18. There Jesus said, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. That wasn't a metaphor. It wasn't a parable. It wasn't some type of riddle. Jesus really meant it. He would lay his life down. It wouldn't be taken from him. He would give it up. And he would take his life up again. By the power of God the Father. He wasn't kidding when he uttered those words way back in John chapter 10. But then on top of that, remember that Jesus isn't the only one called to give up his life. John chapter 12, verse 23, whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Jesus laid down his life and took it up again in eternity. And Jesus calls us to lay down our lives, that we too might take them up in eternity. That's the faith that Jesus calls Peter to at the end of the book. And that's the life that he calls up to. Jesus lived and died and then lived again. And we too are called to die, that we also might live again. We look forward to eternity with God, not because we lived a good life, but because Jesus lived a good life and laid that life down on our behalf. We look forward to eternity, not because of our righteousness, but because of Christ's righteousness. We look forward to eternity, not because we obeyed, but because Christ obeyed. We look forward to peace with God because Jesus took the wrath of God that we rightfully deserved. We look forward to life because Jesus subjected himself to death, even death on a cross. 
That is our reason to celebrate. That is our reason to rejoice. That is our reason to sing from the rooftops and smile on Easter Sunday. Because even though our Savior died on Good Friday, he didn't stay dead. The tomb wasn't occupied for long. And we look forward to the day when we will be in the presence of God. We look forward to the day when our own tombs, our own caskets will be empty. Because Christ's tomb is empty. So let's celebrate that together this morning. Let's rejoice in our salvation this morning. Because Christ has come. Christ has lived. Christ has died. Christ has risen. Christ has ascended. And Christ will one day return. And we look forward to that day with joy and celebration. Because of Easter Sunday. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for all that you've given to us. You give us so much. You give us so many gifts. You give us so many blessings. You give us so many privileges and joys in this short life that we have. But none of those gifts can hold a candle to the gift of your Son. None of those gifts can hold a candle to a cross and an empty tomb. Thank you that because your sinless Son died and lived again, that sinners like us can die and live again. I pray this morning that as we leave this place, as we go to family meals, as we go to get-togethers, as we go home, as we bustle around the kitchen trying to get everything together, as we look forward to seeing friends that we haven't seen for quite some time, I pray that we would keep in mind that as joyful as those things can be, as much as we have to celebrate in this life that you've given us, nothing is worth celebrating compared to the resurrection. Thank you for your son. Thank you for the story of John's gospel that we've read for three months now. Thank you that all these things are true. That everything Jesus said is true. Everything Jesus did was truly from you. And Father, I pray that you would find us faithful as we await Christ's return. Because as sure as the tomb is empty, it's just as sure that one day your son will come back. We love you. We praise you. We thank you for your kindness, your goodness, your love, your mercy, your patience, your holiness. We thank you for who you are and what you've done and what you're doing and what you will do. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. As we wrap up, I'd like to read from John chapter 21, verse 25. The last verse of the book says, Now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. I love that verse. Because as John wraps up his gospel, as he steps back from his desk and looks at what he's written, looks at the words God has given him, John is so amazed by this story, so amazed by his risen Savior, that he says there would not be enough paper and ink to fully communicate how big this is. 
Not enough paper and ink to do this story justice. Well, I pray that we feel the same way. I pray that we are just as amazed by our risen Savior as John. So let's stand and sing together an old hymn that I think John would agree with. It's a hymn singing just how amazing Christ is, how much we have to celebrate, how much we have to be joyful. So let's sing together this morning. Mm -hmm. 